Again, glad you guys are here. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Revelation chapter 4. Uh, middle school, you guys can slip out back with Jeremy and Emily. I want to do that. Great. It's been a while since we've, six weeks actually, since we've been in Revelation. So extended recap, just to get us all on the same page. Revelation was written to seven churches in Turkey in the 90s AD by John the Apostle, the beloved Apostle. It was written because uh, the emperor, Domitian, was increasing the level of persecution of the church. So it wasn't everybody, everywhere, all the time. But in general, the level of persecution was rising. And so you, these seven churches are responding differently. Some of them are remaining faithful, and they're kind of getting kicked around. And some of them are compromising, and uh, they seem to be doing okay outwardly. And so this letter was written to address all of those uh, circumstances. So where does Revelation get confusing? One, it's three different types of literature all rolled up into one book. It's a letter. It was written to these seven churches. It was meant to be read in their worship services. It, it, it's like Colossians or Ephesians or 1 Corinthians. It was written to address very specific circumstances. But it's also prophetic. It's a prophecy that's future-oriented. Oftentimes, prophecy in the Bible uh, speaks to a situation, and, and God is either challenging people who are compromising, he's, he's warning them, or he's comforting people who are being faithful. And Revelation has both of those things. And the part that really gets tricky for us is it's also it's called apocalyptic, which is not anything that we're very familiar with. It's a type of literature that's highly symbolic. It's true. It's just not literal, and it, it trips us up. And it, 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 Revelation, the word means an unveiling, a revealing, a disclosing. It's God's pulling the curtain back so that these seven churches can see what's going on behind the scenes, what's going on in heaven. So regardless of what's playing out on the ground, God wants them to know what he's doing. And, that, and, and he communicates that in this, again, this highly symbolic language that's all rooted in the Old Testament. So that's led, there's four major interpretive approaches to Revelation. Three are helpful, one is, is not, and so, but it's still popular, which is unfortunate. The three that are helpful, one is called a preterist approach, which says, hey, this is a letter, and it had to make sense to the first guys who read it, and so everything that happens in Revelation from chapter 1 through chapter 19, it's, it's all already happened. It's all in the past. The other end of the spectrum is futurist. And they would say beginning in chapter 4, which we're going to start today, all the way through the end, that's all stuff that's in the distant future, the seven years around when Jesus is returning. And then there are guys who are idealist or it's a symbolic approach that says, hey, this is an apocalyptic book. We don't want to get lost in the weeds. We want to say this is a, this is a, a book that's depicting the ongoing struggle between God and Satan, and we need to pull out the principles that will apply to our life. There's truth in all of those. The one that's not helpful is called historist where you read Revelation in one hand and the newspaper in the other hand, and you try to connect the dots. And we're playing guess who the Antichrist is. And that's just not, nobody's been right and it's not super helpful. So we're going to leave that one behind and we're going to combine the best of those first three. We're going to say, yes, Revelation's a letter and it had to make sense to the first guys. It was written to them and it has to make sense to them. But it's also prophetic. It has a future bent. Oftentimes, prophecies in the Bible have a near-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. We just came out of Christmas, and we saw that. A lot of the prophecies about Jesus, like some of them were fulfilled in the time of Isaiah, and then they were fulfilled again 600 years later. 
And the same thing is true in Revelation, and it is apocalyptic. It's highly symbolic. We don't want to get lost in the weeds of trying to figure out what the mark of the beast is. We want to say, what is the truth that God is communicating through this imagery that we apply to our lives? So that's what we're trying to do. Revelation 4 and 5, it would be great if we could do them together. We just don't have enough time. Four this week, five next week, the two most important chapters in Revelation, those two chapters. Chapters 6 through chapter 18 have a series, three series of seven judgments each. And then there are all of these figures that appear. There's two witnesses, there's two women, there's two beasts. And it gets pretty squirrely pretty quickly. And it can honestly be pretty disturbing. Chapters 4 and 5 keep us grounded. Before any of that stuff happens, John has a vision of the throne room of heaven. And he sees God the Father on the throne. And then he sees God the Son, Jesus, holding the scroll of history. And those are the two things that we want to keep in mind as we get into chapters 6 through 18 in the coming weeks and months. God the Father is seated on the throne. God the Son, Jesus, holds history in his hand. When all of this stuff starts kind of going nuts and it's hard to figure out which end is up, to remember those two truths. Vital. Chapter 4 and chapter 5, two most important chapters in Revelation. We'll begin chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You're worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So John has just taken a tour of these seven churches in Asia with Jesus. He's gone around, and he's, Jesus has said, let me tell you what's really going on in these churches. Regardless of what you see on the outside, here's what's actually happening. Here's what I see when I look at them, Jesus says. When that's over, Jesus says, come on up. And so we're going to pause. I don't want to get lost in the weeds here necessarily, but this is a, some of you may have heard this before, that some people hear those first few words, come on up, as um, indicating the rapture of the church. Those words, John being taken up to heaven, that indicates that the church will be taken up to heaven before anything that we read in chapter 6 through 18, before any of those judgments, before the, tri- the, the tribulation, that's called a pre-tribulation rapture. The word church does not appear in Revelation in chapter 6 through 18 during all of those judgments. And people would say, see, that means that the church won't be on the earth. 
And I've said before, you can believe that. You just need to be right. Because if you're wrong, you're not going to be prepared. It'll throw you for a loop. If you wind up being squeezed and pressed and you weren't anticipating that. I don't see that. There's no other place in the New Testament where one person would somehow represent the entire church. And while it's true, the word church doesn't appear in chapter 6 through chapter 18. The word saints does, and that's, that's us. So the, I, I don't see it. But again, it's okay if you do. I just want you to be prepared. Jesus says the ones who stand firm to them will be saved. And I don't want you to be thrown for a loop if things get difficult and you were expecting to get kind of beamed up to heaven before that happened. Again, it can cause you to question God. It can cause you to question your relationship with him. It's just not, it's not great. And so you want to be ready. And again, some of that may be something uh, many of you have never heard, but that is a common teaching and uh, a strain of the church or in a, a section of the church. And I just want to address that. So John doesn't physically go up to heaven. He just has a vision of the throne room. And the first thing he sees is a throne. And that's a really important symbol in Revelation. Over 40 times you'll see, we'll see the throne of God, and it represents God's sovereignty. Super important. One of the main teachings of Revelation, one of the main themes, one of the things that I think God wants, uh, kind of a, a variety of understandings of sovereignty, two major schools of thought. You can decide which one resonates most with you. People who love God and respect the Bible believe both. People in this church believe both. One is, is this idea that everything that happens happens because God wants it to. Every single thing that happens happens because God has decreed it or God has willed it to be so. Theologian named R.C. Sproul famously said, there are no maverick molecules in the universe. If, God is, if there are, then God is not sovereign. If God is not sovereign, then he's not God. His understanding is everything that happens happens because God has decided for it to happen. I call that omnicontrol. That has a negative sound, but I don't mean it to. It just means God's in control of every single decision and every single event. Another school of thought, the one that I subscribe to, is that God's sovereignty doesn't necessarily mean that everything happens because God has decided for it to happen, but that God has ensured and will ensure that his will is done ultimately. It doesn't mean everything that happens happens because God wanted it to, but God can redeem anything. God can work through anything or around anything or over anything or under anything in order to accomplish his purposes. God will ensure that his purposes are complete. What those two ideas have in common is the idea that God is the one who ultimately is in charge. And that's a major teaching in Revelation. God is in charge. So John sees a throne, and he sees the Father on it. Being a good Jew, he doesn't try to describe God. We don't want to make any graven images. So God, John's not going to try to describe what the Father looks like. He describes him in terms of light. Light from, your Bible may say, carnelian or rubies. Light from uh, from a jasper, and then he talks about this rainbow. Remember uh, Genesis 9, the rainbow is a symbol of the covenant, a sign of the covenant between God and Noah to not destroy the earth by a flood. So before we see all of these 21 judgments on the earth, we're reminded that the Father is merciful. And then John tells us some other things that he sees and that he hears. He sees the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold spirit of God, those seven lamps. Those represent the Holy Spirit. We'll see in chapter 5, God the Son, Jesus comes on the scene. We don't see him in chapter 4. There's a sea. I don't know what that is. 
It, it appears here in chapter 4 and again in chapter 15. Those are the only two places we see it in the New Testament. There's not a whole lot of information, so I'm not going to speculate. I don't know what that is. Uh, he hears uh, thunder, peals, and sees lightning. That phrase, lightning, uh, peel, rumbles of thunder, peals of thunder, that occurs three other times in Revelation, always at important moments. The seventh bowl the seventh trumpet, and the seventh seal. So what that says to me is that these judgments all are flowing from this throne, from this Father who is just and merciful. He's the one who's executing these judgments on the earth. And then we have these two groups of beings, four living creatures and 24 elders. So you can think of concentric circles, the throne with the Father in the middle, then these four living creatures and then these 24 elders, and we'll see in chapter 5, then a large number of angels around them. So you can think, again, like a bullseye, the the throne with the Father on it's in the very middle, next ring, four living creatures, next ring, 24 elders, next ring, all of these angels that we'll see next week. Four living creatures, weird, honestly, probably a bit, seems kind of grotesque. If you saw one on the street, you probably wouldn't think, oh, I bet that thing's in heaven. Probably not. But... (laughs) That's what we have, symbolic, symbolic. So Ezekiel 1, Isaiah 6, both Ezekiel and Isaiah had similar visions to John. They also saw the throne room. You can read about them in those two chapters. And they also saw four, they also saw these beings around the throne. They look a little bit different. Again, it's all imagery. They didn't see different things. It's just different imagery based on what, God wants to communicate at that particular time. So these four, they each have a face. And the rabbis said, well, the lion was the chief animal or chief among the wild animals, ox chief among the domesticated animals, eagle chief among the flying animals, and man chief among all of creation. So we have all of the the chiefs of those things represented. So what that, to me, communicates is it's it's representative of the worship of all of creation. They have all of these eyes because they're always alert. Their eyes focused on the Father. So they're like the worship leaders in heaven, these beings are. And then the next ring out are these 24 elders. Again, two schools of thought, major schools of thought, lots of sub-options. One, that these are people. They represent the people of God. 12 plus 12 is 24. 12 tribes of Israel, the Old Testament people of God, 12 apostles, New Testament people of God. So 24 elders is all the people of God, Old Covenant and New. Not where I come from. I see them as divine beings, not necessarily as humans. We'll see as we read through Revelation, they themselves seem to make a distinction between themselves and humanity. Uh, the Old Testament, you can see this particularly in Job 1 and 2, talks about a, a divine council some divine beings that rule with God in heaven. And that's what I see here. They have crowns on, which to me symbolizes ruling. And again, as we read through Revelation, we'll see that there there seems to be a distinction between these 24 elders and people. But you, you can decide what you see. What those things have in common, the living creatures and the elders, is they're worshiping the Father. The living creatures are worshiping God based on who he is, his character, holy, holy, holy. They're saying, this is who you are. These 24 elders are worshiping God based on what he's done. You're worthy. Why? Because you've created 
everything and because you sustain everything. So we have worship of God's as God, his character, and his attributes, or excuse me, and his activity, where he's worshiped as holy by these four living creatures, and he's worshiped because he sustains and he creates by these 24 elders. And that's what, that's what John sees. And again, one of, to me, one of the two most important chapters in all of Revelation. So what does that mean for us, June 6, 2020? The same thing, I think, the same function that that chapter played in those seven churches in Turkey, 2,000 years ago, it can play in our lives as well. It can remind us, like there's a throne. And when John saw the throne, I wasn't on it. And, and neither were you. And neither was money, and neither was a political candidate. It was the Father. Perspective is so important. It's one of the things Revelation does for us is it gives us perspective. Again, remember that unveiling, this revealing. Here's what's going on behind the scenes that you can't quite see. You don't want to get too wrapped up in what you can see, the circumstances. Those are real, the circumstances of your life, but they're not ultimate. And sometimes they're not telling you the truth. We need the, the, the curtain parted, pulled back, so we can see what God is actually doing. Revelation reminds us there's a just and merciful There's a powerful and kind father who's seated on the throne, and he is sovereign. He's sovereign over the affairs of the earth, and he's sovereign over the affairs of your own life and mine as well. Easy to lose sight of that in the day in and day out of our lives. Perspective, it's your vantage point. It's your take on things, but it's not just mental We live out of our perspective. Our perspective, in many ways, determines our behavior. There's a mega millions jackpot on Tuesday, $69 million, not nothing. And if I told you that the guy who's going to win it, if he's an instant gratification, live for the moment kind of guy, you can probably guess what he's going to do with his $69 million. And if I told you the guy who's going to win it is a plan for the future, kind of guy, you can probably guess what he would do with his $69 million. Our perspective determines our behavior. When we get off, when we get off, when we lose sight of the reality that the Father is on the throne, that he is sovereign over the affairs of our lives and the affairs of our home, the affairs of our work, our school, our city, and our world, when we lose sight of that, that's when we start not being able to sleep very good. That's when we start getting anxious that's when we start getting angry because we try to control things and it doesn't work out. It's when we get an ulcer. It's when we make some really bad decisions. Our perspective affects our behavior. I want to show you some pictures, and I want you to tell me what you see. Just first thing when you see the pictures. Young woman. Who sees a young woman? Who sees an old woman? Next. Who sees a rabbit? Who sees a duck? That, the rabbit's not very popular, all three services. Next, who sees a man? Who sees a mermaid? Y'all see that mermaid there? Right there? It's, maybe a merman is better. You're probably looking for a woman. See his face up there, and that's his arm, fish over there. All right, next one. A person. Everybody sees the face. Who sees a person looking at the landscape? Y'all see that too? The nose. Person's back to you. So... Both images are in each picture. It's both. It's a rabbit and a duck. 
The difference is what you're focused on, right? That's the only difference. It's what you're focused on. Think about John. So he's just taking a tour of these seven churches, and it's not all rainbows and butterflies. There's one church that's actually in danger of not being a church anymore. Jesus says, I'm going to take your lampstand away because you don't love me first. There are churches that are being faithful, that are being squeezed. There's already been at least one martyr. There are churches that seem to be thriving externally, but internally they're rotten. There's heresy that's taken root. There's false teachers that have sway. It's not all bad, but it's certainly, again, it's not all rainbows and butterflies. He's about to witness these these 21 judgments on the earth. He's about to see these two beasts that wage war against the church and that demand worship from the nations. What's he going to focus on? What are the seven churches going to focus on? What about you and me? What are we going to focus on? January 6, 2020, the whole year in front of us. Are we going to focus on the fact that we have a good and holy and righteous and merciful Father who is sovereign over the affairs of my heart and my home and this church and your work and your school and our relationships and our city and our world? Are we going to focus on our circumstances? They're both real. So that your circum- it's not that your circumstances aren't real. It's not even that they're not important. They're just not ultimate. So what are we going to focus on? Again, it's, it's not a one-time decision. There's a constant need for us to be reminded of Revelation chapter 4. To be reminded there is a throne room. And the Father's on the throne. And, and, and what's happening there is worship. And worship is one of the things that can help remind us. I don't, I don't know anything that puts us in our place in a good way more quickly than worship does. It reminds us of who's the one who is in charge and is not us. Worship based on who God is. He's holy. He's other than us. He's perfect in his character. And worship based on what God does. He's the one that creates. Most of us get that. He's also the one that sustains. That one's hard for us. We lose sight of that really quickly. That God is the one who sustains all things. The Bible says by his powerful word. So as we begin, I just want to take a few minutes as we begin the year. If you close your eyes with me. Kind of an extended time for you to pray. I'm going to ask you to ask the Lord a couple of questions. And then you'll just kind of work off of that. So here's the first thing I'd encourage you in your heart to ask the Lord. Just right now, 1051, ask God, what am I focused on? What am I focused on? If it's anything other than him, then just confess, acknowledge that. And repent. You don't have to weep and wail. Just agree with him. Second question. I would encourage you to ask. God, what am I tempted to focus on other than you? What am I tempted to focus on other than you? I see kind of two 
two different ways this works, kind of depending on your personality. Some of us, the word in my mind is we're allured by other things. Our gaze is drawn in other directions. It almost feels like a temptation. And the other picture I had, I wear glasses, and I know a lot of you do. It's, it's like if you wear glasses and you fall down and you get banged around and your glasses fall off. That's kind of the other picture to me. It's, it's not necessarily that you're being allured, that you're being, your gaze is being drawn to other people or other things. It's more like you've gotten jostled around and your glasses have fallen off and you can't see that well anymore. But the end result is the same. You've lost your focus on Jesus. So what is it that you're tempted to focus on? And most likely, it's going to be something that's good and important. Just to remember it's not ultimate. So if you're willing, you can pray a prayer like this in your heart. God, I want to commit 2020 to you. And I want it to be a year where I remain focused. Where I'm reminded and live out of the reality that there's a throne in heaven and I'm not the one sitting on it. You are. And in my most honest and kind of at my best, I'm thankful that you're the one sitting on it and not me. You're smarter than me, wiser than me, stronger than me. You're holier than me. You're more righteous than me, more merciful than I am. God, I want to acknowledge that you're sovereign in the affairs of my heart, in the affairs of my home, in the affairs of my relationships, my work or school, this city and world. I want to keep my focus on that reality. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict me when my eyes are drawn towards other ones or other things. Holy Spirit, would you convict me when I'm banged around and I lose my focus? Just kind of the push and pull of life. In those moments, I pray that I would be sensitive to your voice. And honestly, I pray that I would move into a posture of worship quickly. Acknowledging you're holy. That's who you are. And that you create and sustain all things. It's what you do. And I'd be able to take great peace in that reality. God, my prayer for everyone in the room, students and adults, is that we would all live day by day, focused on you as the sovereign one in our lives and in our world. Would you convict us when we subtly and to trust you? I pray when particularly when the circumstances would indicate that you're not in control. Would you remind us that you are? And will we choose to believe that even over what we see with our eyes? In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with uh, one song of worship. Bo's going to come back and lead us. We'll have ministry teams up here. Uh, We'd love to pray with you.
about two things. One, if you brought in a need and you want prayer for that, please let us pray with you. We would love to do that. Two, if you know yourself well enough to know that you do struggle with focus, that, that that's difficult for you. It's easy sitting in here in a church service on January 6th. It's not so easy when you're out there on January 10th. It just becomes difficult. We would love to pray with you. I know you just prayed in your heart, uh, but there's something about having people come around you and support you in that. We would love uh, to, to pray that this would be a year where you would grow in, your, in the grace to remain focused on the fact that the Father is on the throne and that you'd be able to rest in that reality. So y'all, please respond as you feel led, and Bo will dismiss us in a couple of minutes. You guys can stand. Ministry teams, you guys.